comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. together from remote galaxies are some of the most sinister podcasters of all time the long box of doom dedicated to a single objective the conquest of the comic book universe Hey everybody and welcome to the Long Box of Doom episode 263, part 4 in what we have decided will be an 8-part series on Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four slash FF Epic. I'm Jordan from Jersey and I'm joined tonight by uh, our brand newest member, Rich Chubtoad. How you doing, Rich? Doing great. I'm doing fantastic, uh, actually. Oh, that's even better. And we're also joined, of course, by longtime LOD mainstays uh, Jim Dietz and Russell Latham. How are you two doing? Good. Talk about going for the low-hanging fruit, Rich. Come on, man. Can you do any better than that? <laughs> Can you have a more direct aim? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, like I said, this is part four of what we have mathematically determined will be an eight-part series. Um, all the numbering has been pretty straightforward up to now, but I found a couple tweets from Jonathan Hickman himself, the writer of the issues we are talking about in this series, that gives the uh, quote-unquote correct reading order for the rest of the series. So, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, I'm going to go through what we'll be covering tonight, what we've already covered, and what will be covered in the future. Part one was Dark Reign, Fantastic Four 1 through 5, and Fantastic Four 570 through 572. Part two was Fantastic Four 573 through 580. Uh, Part three was Fantastic Four 581 through 88. Tonight, on uh, the episode, we will be discussing FF number one through number seven. Part five will be FF 8, 9, 10, 11, and uh, Fantastic Four 600. Uh, Part six will be FF 12. F4601, FF13, F4602, FF14, F4603, FF15, F4604. Part 7, uh, 16, 605, 605.1, 606, 17, 18, 607, 608, and the final part will be FF19 19 through 21, F4609, 610, FF22, F4611, and then finally FF23. That is a mouthful, but that is the entire correct reading order and how we will be covering it episode by episode. And if those, are the, those are tonight's lotto numbers, and if you have those numbers, you may have won the big jackpot. <laughs> I was going to say, I think somewhere in there he sank my battleship, but I'm not sure. Yeah, something like that. So, like we said, tonight we're going to be discussing FF number one through number seven. Rich, this is your first episode in our Fantastic Fourteen series. What's your history with the Fantastic Four? Fantastic Four is actually one of the comic books that I have absolutely loved and adored through the, through its best and worst times. Um, I actually, it's it's the one run, the one collection 
that I have the entire series going all the way back to number one. Wow. Uh, I inherited those from family, and uh, um, I, w- I, I would have to say behind Spider-Man and Batman, Fantastic Four is, is my must-grab. Um, except for this recent run, even though I am grabbing it, uh, I won't. We're not here for that run, but still. <laughs> It's it's interesting. I like some of the ideas in it. I'm not loving the execution, but that is a topic for another day, as you said. I do have to say, though, that uh, I'm glad that you guys were doing this, and then I'm now on with you, But uh, because before, I don't know how I missed it, I never got that Dark Rain miniseries, and so I went back and read that when you talked to me about it, and um, wow. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's very and it and it helps really set up and make more sense of what I've, you know, read in the actual run we're talking about. So FF issue number 1 starts in an odd place. It starts uh with AIM and introduces two AIM characters, Dr. Forson and Dr. Gemma. These are two I'll say minor AIM scientists, maybe higher up on the totem pole but still kind of in the middle. And Hickman loves these guys, and so do I. He will continue using them through this entire run into his Avengers run. And this first panel here actually sets up a lot of stuff that's even still going on in um, Avengers, New Avengers, and Avengers World with Nick Spencer. So as innocuous as these few panels may seem, they're actually fairly important. And that's probably why it's the first page of the first issue of the first of the new series that he points these out, because he knows he's going to be using them for a while. And it's, it's a cool idea, these two guys making a splinter group of AIM, as it were. And like you said, Jordan, it plays into the whole AIM Island business uh, later in, event, in Hickman's Avengers uh, and on in Nick Spencer's. I mean, it's really, uh, I really like the characters too, you know. I mean, the one is obviously, you know, way more um, uh, confident than the other. Oh, they, they could almost be Venture Brothers characters. Yes. <laughs> you know, in an alternate universe, they're in the Venture Brothers universe, so. But they're yeah they're awesome and I really like the way Hickman used, has used them and you know peppered them throughout his you know, run. So like you said, they've kind of splintered away from AIM. They're starting afresh because they feel like the rest of the organization has gone the wrong direction, and uh, they're building some type of portal. I don't know if it's ever named. At least in these first seven issues, it's not. This may be uh, an early version of the Forge. It may also be something that was recently named in Avengers World, the Veil. But they're using this to jump to uh, the Pavlov facility, we'll find out in a few minutes, uh, which we've seen before, and and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, The art in these first five issues is all done by Steve Epting, and I gotta say, of all the artists that Hickman worked with in his F4, FF run, I think Epting is my favorite. The detail on the faces, especially in the close-ups, is so amazing, and not quite photorealistic, but almost um, to the point where it is just, just gorgeous. And, of course, all, all the writing is done by Jonathan Hickman tonight. I totally agree with you. Uh, Epting is one of my favorite artists. And, I mean, just when you get to the second page where uh, you see Reed and then the hologram of Johnny, that's just, I mean, that's great, fantastic art. And uh, I'm very impressed with it. Yeah, I knew what I was in for from his incredible work they did on Cap. Um, as much as I like, as much as I like that kind of Kirby Sinnott influence on the Eagle Shim art, I have to agree. Epting is my favorite artist in this run as well. And, and after that first page with AIM, we get a double page splash as Hickman is apt to do with a FF logo. And we're told the human torch has died. The fantastic four is no more. Welcome to tomorrow. Welcome to the future foundation. 
And the coloring in the, at least this first issue is by Paul Mounts. I believe he, he continues through at least the first five as yeah. the color artist. And kudos to him as well, because it's fantastic. No pun intended. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we've already said uh, Johnny Storm is dead. Of course, that should be your, your clue. There's going to be spoilers here for everything in all seven of these issues, plus everything we've covered already in this run. So if you're just jumping in with this one, you should really go back to part one listen all the way through. Uh, but we then go to the Baxter building where, uh, like Jim said, Reed Richards is watching a hologram, kind of a last will and testament from Johnny Storm, where he says, A, Spider-Man should get his role in the Fantastic Four. After all, he is the second coolest superhero. And uh, he, he leaves Reed with the message, always remember what you stand for. I love you guys. And, and we will remember from previous episodes that always remember what you stand for was a very important thing that Reed had told Johnny um, and that Johnny had kind of died while living that message. So it's a very important phrase. Yeah, this is right after, of course, you know, the death of Johnny Storm, all the mourning that we had in the issues, and, of course, the Franklin and Spider-Man uh, interstitial that we had in the, the last issue. Um, so, I mean, having Spider-Man on the team is kind of poignant in reference to that way. It's also a throwback to Amazing Spider-Man number one, when Spider-Man, at that point, when he wanted to join the Fantastic Four, you know. As um, the Amazing Bagman. Right. <laughs> and um, I just, I, I love the scene of him, you know, talking to no one, saying, you know, all right, Johnny, all right, looking over the kids um, and saying, so this is tomorrow. It just flashes back to that scene where he's talking at that Singularity conference. You know what I mean? And yes. He's saying that all of you are stagnated except for a few, you know, where is your sense of exploration? Where is your sense of tomorrow? This is, you know, obvi- it's touching, you know, uh, showing his care of these kids, but it's also like, uh, a, fly, a call back to that, too, you know, in my mind, anyway. And, and as he's watching the kids, the kids are actually taking down the Fantastic Four logo and replacing it with the FF logo, which is three hexagons, two black, one white, which is the symbol for the FF. Again, Hickman showing off his graphic uh, design skills, you know, with this whole new de- redesign of the FF costumes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we then flip the page, like you said, Spider-Man's joining the team, and we get a a wordless splash page of him, a very beautiful splash page of him swinging through the city as he lands on the Baxter building and is greeted by Susan Storm in a alternate version of the new costume. It is a little weird that the first full light version of the costume you see is not the standard one. This is the predominantly black version, which I actually like a little bit better. But uh, she welcomes him inside, gives him kind of a rundown of the things that have happened over the last few issues. And uh, as he's going inside, he passes Ben in his room, and Ben is uh, not even willing to speak to him. He slams the door when Spider-Man walks by, not because he's mad at Pete, but because he's still so incredibly depressed over the death of Johnny. Yeah, I really like the Future Foundation costumes. I mean, I'm, I tend to be a traditionalist for the most part, but every time they do a redesign, A, you know it's going to be temporary, for the you know, even, even if it's you know, a year, two years, three years, whatever, that, you know, eventually they're going to go back to the classic. But the fact that these are, as Sue puts it, advanced, unstable molecules, and they can change the costume kind of at will, it's it's really cool because, you know, they can go back to the regular blue FF and they can cut back to this and they could kind of invert the color scheme. And it's almost like it's it could be representative of the mood at the time. And obviously, um, you know, Sue's in mourning, so it makes sense that she would kind of be wearing the black um, and Reed just kind of being more practical, you know, having the white, uh, you know, for the most part. I, I do. I don't recall. Do we see Reed ever doing the inverted style where it's black and with the with the white accents? 
I don't believe so, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. I mean, we see Spidey kind of take the Sue approach where, you know, he kind of uh, goes back and forth between the two color schemes and stuff. But I don't know. I just, I really, I really like when they mix things up, you know, occasionally and do it in a really classy way. You know, it's not, this wasn't gratuitous or it wasn't, it wasn't done where you felt like it, it was a money grab, you know, like, oh, let's redesign the costume while we're launching this book so it could sell more. It was more a natural progression of, we are not the Fantastic Four, quote unquote, anymore because of Johnny's death. We may go on and operate, you know, as a expanded team or as a family and still perform the same kind of functionality. But, you know, using the old, you know, style costumes, at least at this point, is not, you know, is not what we're about right now. So I just I really I really liked it. Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, we see a lot of changes in comics done just for the sake of change a lot of times. Um, like, I don't know, we have the female Thor um, announcement, the, you know, Wolverine, Death of Wolverine, all these things. It just, this event is really driven from the ground up from the story. And I think it really shows, um, you know, these changes, like like Russ said, aren't cosmetic. They're, they're you know, they make logical sense in, in the framework of the story that he's trying to tell. And the second thing I wanted to point out, this panel at the bottom of the page with Ben holding Franklin and Valeria. I just love that panel. That's just so beautiful. It just shows like his... Uh, not only his grief, but his like closest and, and you know, how, I don't know. It's just a really touching panel to me. I really like that a lot. It stood out. Yeah. So Spider-Man gets the new costume. His is different than the rest of the FFs. His still maintains a spider logo instead of that uh, tri-hexagon logo. Um, it's semi-reminiscent of the Venom symbiote costume or the anti-Venom costume. Um, when he's wearing it in the full white version, but like Sue shows him, he can mentally control it to make it look like whatever he wants, and even tries out a straight version of the Venom symbiote costume, the black costume. I, and I, uh, I want to jump in re real quick. Um, so Marvel Legends did, uh, you know, they have the 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 Legends series, which are the larger. I think they're like eight inch figures. I think they're actually they're six inch figures. And typically, you know, you put them all bunched together and they build something, you know, Arnim Zola or Terax or whatever. Uh, and one of the series, actually, the variant for the Spider-Man was this white F, you know, Future Foundation costume. And it was it was wasn't widely available, but it was really cool. And I was able to to snag one of those. Yeah, and I, I, I really like the costume change. Uh, I was a little hesitant when there was talk of it before the issue came out, but I immediately liked it. And I kind of wished Peter had stuck with the black because, I don't know, in the 80s, a black-suited Spider-Man was one of my favorite things, you know, up until Venom and whatnot, which it still was awesome, but I like him in the black. And I thought, you know, in this way, it's still a little different because it's got the white and silver accents and all that. But yeah, I mean, he he talks talking to Sue like uh, justifies like the new costume or whatever. I mean, she's like, I was in the mood for something different. You know, the original costume seemed wrong, and that makes total sense in the story rather than you know, oh, we'll just give them new costumes, blah blah blah. You know. Yeah, this seems extremely. Uh, it's respectful to Johnny. Respectful, yeah. The, the other word I'm looking for is reverent, I guess. Yes. And just you know, it is not fair for us to be the Fantastic Four if Johnny is not here. You know, and and I like that. But they're they're changing the costumes. They're showing him the costume when they get a special alert, alert threat level five incident underway at the Pavlov facility, and that's because uh, the members of AIM have teleported in, like we saw at the beginning of the issue, and they're rescuing uh, Bentley Whitman. Is it? I believe last name's Whitman, the Wizard, yeah, it's Whitman. who of course we've seen throughout this run, who's uh, an insane man. 
And 15 minutes later, the FF are on their way in a a re-applicated, if not redesigned, uh, fantastic car with Spider-Man in tow, and they come in to bust up the AIM soldiers. But AIM gets away with the wizard before they can stop them. I really love, I mean, we talked about this previously, but I really love what Hickman's doing with the wizard. I mean, it's not, he really does a good job in general with these kind of almost second-rate, maybe I wouldn't call them third-rate villains, because they were pretty prominent in FF past, you know, coming up. You know, the wizard and Diablo and some of these other guys, you know, just AIM in general. I, I love that Hickman has taken AIM as almost a joke, but he, he still he still kind of references that they're kind of, you know, viewed at as, as a bit of a joke, but has really made them kind of a preeminent force in the Marvel Universe again, which I, I think is is really cool. The way he writes Bentley is um, like Reed Richards seeing himself in a lot of ways, like what he could have been if he'd become addicted yeah. to his own technology and his own mind. And, that, you know, it hadn't it almost it's almost a reflection of those alternate Reed Richards as well. You know, he sees himself in the wizard. And so when he sees Bentley, he sees a chance of you know proving that, you know, he didn't have to turn out this way. You know what I mean? He sees a chance of, of, of bending that kind of fate. And this, you know, this, you know, when he's like, you have something of mine, Richards, I'll be coming for it soon. And they, you know, explode and disappear. I mean, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about Bentley 22, AKA, you know, um, our, our good friend, you know, the Bentley clone in the, in the uh, future foundation. And I love Spider-Man's last line. And I think Jim will love, uh, Reed's rebuttal, but he says, great. So is there anything positive we can take from my first day? And Reed replies, I'm pretty sure Dad's making roast. Yeah. And we then flash over to the Baxter building where sure indeed <laughs> Nathaniel Richards has made roast. And they sit down to eat. First, Spider-Man almost sits in Johnny's chair, but he's told that is off limits because that's Johnny's and he's very respectful of that. And then they sit down for one of the greatest exchanges ever. Oh no, that's not this is not the um Yes it is, yes it is. And then they sit down for one of the greatest exchanges ever, which is uh the FF saying Grace. Uh, where they start off, uh, Dear God, or any similar Judeo-Christian messianic figure, or the Ancient Ones, or some weird evolutionary something or other. Bless the machine and this carcass we are about to eat. Bless the bubble and the life that lives within. May their advancement transform the world. Or some random confluence of events that resulted in the perfect conditions for life to flourish on this once barren, desolate hunk of rock. We thank you for it. Bentley coughs. Oh, right. Or Mephisto, the devil, or some other ancient evil incarnate being. Hell yes. We thank you for this wonderful dinner. Amen. And that is beautiful. No, I would love... No, well, real quick. Not only is it really funny, it kind of shows where every character is coming from all in one page, all in about six panels. Yes. I'm sorry. Just one... I was going to say, just once I, I, I'd like to see an episode of Duck Dynasty end with Phil using that as his prayer. So. <laughs> <sighs> I love the Moloids, though. I love how they're just uh, almost like the... Um, they remind me of... Remember Men in Black, like, at the end of the first one when they go to the... to the, I guess it was Grand Central Station and they open the locker and, and there's those little beings in there and it's like, all hail K, all hail K, and then, you know, they... they then Will Smith does something and they change and basically um, are all reverential to uh, to Will Smith's character, Jay. It's just, I don't know, it just... It just kind of reminds me that they're, they're like overly dramatic about the smallest things. Like, I think later on we see where Sue hands them a sandwich and it was it's like, oh, you know, you know, basically praising the sandwich as this great, uh, this is great thing. 
So Reed says, uh, I think what we need to do, we need to start thinking about the Inhumans here. We should start thinking bigger. Let's terraform the moon. And everybody kind of goes, yeah, that's a great idea, Reed. Until his dad says, well, I think it's a terrible idea. And everyone looks at him and says, what, we don't do dissenting opinions here? Reed just set, normally says something and everyone automatically agrees? That's ridiculous. And Reed replies, how refreshing. I'm glad you're home, son. Clean your plate, son. Or I'm glad you're home, dad. Clean your plate, son. But yeah. uh, again, just that whole four pages of them eating dinner, or five pages if you include them sitting down, is so good. That is the Fantastic Four in a nutshell. And this is kind of the, the thing he was talking about, the kind of thing he's looking for. You know, other points of view, people are going to you know, go against him, and, and but, but push him forward, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the next page, Nathaniel comes up to Reed and says, Reed, uh, your daughter and I have something to talk to you about. Uh, they go down the steps into another section of the building, and uh, we don't find out what it is right off the bat, although we kind of know if we've been reading the issues, but Reed is replying and says, you did what to Val? And uh, she explains pretty much what she did. And as we start flipping the pages, we see a figure in the darkness. We can't tell exactly who it is, but Reed is not particularly thrilled that character is there. And as we flip to the final page, we see that it is Doctor Doom. And he's being invited to join the Future Foundation. I know we've already mentioned Epting, but wow. That that, that that page is amazing. I want, that should be a poster. Um, That's awesome. And the, the FF variant of the Doom figure is gorgeous, too. Yes. Um, all all yes. the FF variants pretty much are, but it is just like that blue and white and silver is... That yeah. is not a color scheme that is used very often in comics. I can think of Cardiac and, and FF Doom, and that's pretty much it. And it really stands out. And if you're using the single issues, I don't know if this is in collected editions, but you have a nice two-page spread at the end um, that has basically the silhouettes of every character in the FF and a little... Um, little legend to explain which each one of them is, which is kind of fun. It's not in the collected edition. That is a shame. Very very Hickman. Yes. I mean, he oh, did yes. the same thing in Nightly News, you know. Yes, and it's clearly done by him. That is 100% yeah. his design right there. It's very much his style. FF number two actually has Doctor Doom on the cover, and the title of the issue is Doom Nation, and we start with Ben uh, breaking a table because he is furious that Dr. Doom has been invited to join them. Uh, Doom immediately starts poking the bear in just the most horrific way possible. Um, He says, Is it true what I've heard, Benjamin, that when Johnny Storm died, valiantly facing an endless army, is it true that you, surrounded by crying children, weeping at the inevitable death of your close comrade and friend, is it true? Is it true that you just watched? How very brave. And they begin to tear each other apart until Sue uses her powers to freeze them in in midair and tell them not in the house. Because just to remind everyone who's listening, Sue is a badass. And in charge. Yes. Yes. I'll tell you what, if I could choose a career, it'd be whoever the salesman is for their furniture at the Baxter building. Because (laughs) that dude must make a fortune. Uh, so, Sue was also unclear about what's happening. This is kind of, the news has just been broken to everyone, and she wants an explanation as well. Uh, she finally gets a bit of an explanation that this is, needs to happen, things are happening in the future, Doom's going to be necessary. Uh, Doom starts poking the bear that is Sue, and she tells him, Do not push me, Victor. I could always do a little more damage up there. A couple of strategically placed air bubbles in your brain, and you'll be reduced to a drooling house pet. If you're good, maybe I'll feed you from the table. 
Because just as a reminder, Sue is the most powerful person on this team. Yes. Can I just say, and I don't know if, I can't remember if you covered this in the other episodes, but uh, I don't think anybody ever before or since has written Sue so well than uh, than Hickman has in this series. Yeah, to, I mean, she would have to be a strong woman for Reed to even be attracted to her, or let alone marry her and all everything else. She would have to be a strong woman to have led the team when, you know, when other people weren't there to lead. You know, I mean, she's all... She should be written as a strong character, and I agree. This is a really good treatment of her. I mean, it, she's obviously the one in charge. You know what I mean? Yep. And uh, it, it's just a, you know light years away from the the, the Kirby uh, version of her being like the hostage of the week. You know, um, this, this this scene with Spider Man right after this. I mean, you have this huge tension between Sue and Doom. She storms out, and it's just totally the balloon of tension is totally popped. And like she's mad at me too. Yeah, he's like, uh, so I guess someone is sleeping on the couch tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so you want me to go with her? You want me to stay, go? I could go. I could do either. <laughs> Hickman doesn't write Spider-Man a lot. Like he's in a lot of these issues, but he's he's not used particularly often vocally. That said, Hickman may write the best Peter Parker slash Spider-Man um, in any book outside of Spider-Man that I've ever read. Like it is just pitch perfect. When he throttles him. Uh, correctly, like you're saying, Jordan, he doesn't overuse him and he doesn't underuse him. You know, he's not. This isn't a Spider-Man book. This is, you know, the Future Foundation, the Fantastic Four. You know, however you want to look at it. Uh, and Spider-Man is a character in that book, and I think Hickman does a really good job of treating it that way. That he doesn't, you know, because Spider-Man could easily be written to steal the spotlight and always have the best one-liners, and um, you know, he he, and and I think it could have easily fallen into him just being the replacement Johnny Storm, you know, always bickering with Ben and always, you know, kind of being the wise guy. And there are aspects of that to his character, but like you're saying, it's just, it's not so prominent as to be distracting and to take away from everybody else. And so they go into the big conference room, uh, more of an auditorium, I guess, kind of a, a circular auditorium, and we explain what the problem is, why Doom is here in the first place, at least half of it, and that is Doom has had serious brain damage. We already knew this. This was from something before Hickman's run. I, I think we had established that we weren't entirely sure which run it was from. But regardless, Doom has brain damage. He's not as smart as he should be, as he was. And he can't control magic anymore. And as part of the deal that he's made with Valeria, he is going to do something very important for the FF if they will fix his brain. So they all sit down in this big auditorium, all the brains of the FF, and they discuss what to do. I do enjoy that the Molades are very surprised to learn that Spider-Man is also a very smart person, and one yeah. of them does not like him because yeah, of that. that's great. And so they discuss what they're going to need to do, which leads to two pages of, let's see here, ten panels that are almost all identical. There are very slight variations between them. But it is one of the funniest two it's pages awesome. I've ever read. It's so awesome. Um, so it's Valeria, Reed, and Doom. And Valeria says, so what we need is a backup of Doom's brain. And Reed looks at her and goes, oh, oh, Val, how elegant. How did I not think of that? She says, Dad, you've been a bit distracted. And he turns to Doom and he says, well, yes, did you hear that, Victor? And, and Doom just says, hmm. And Val keeps repeating, I said we need a backup. And Doom can't quite pick up what she's saying until the end where he realizes they need to go get the help of Kristoff. And I'm not doing it justice for how funny it is, but it really is quite amusing. Uh, Dragon Man, Ben, and Sue go down to Muck's bar where they discuss that they don't really know what their place in this team is anymore. Things seem to be changing at a much faster clip than they're comfortable with. And uh, they, they drink about it and they decide that they might need to take some time away from everybody else to kind of find themselves. 
Meanwhile, we go to Latveria the next day, where uh, Christoph Werner is greeted or greets his father as uh, the rest of the team goes to Latveria. We get a quick recap of who Werner is. Uh, and Werner was, and I say I keep saying Werner, but Christoph Werner, uh, he was orphaned. He was raised by Doom. Uh, he was designed to be a replacement for Doom if anything ever happened, including um, if anything ever happened to Doom. Kristoff uh, would get a full measure of Doom, which means basically a backup of Doom's brain, which was made a while ago, gets implanted into his head. And wasn't so now they're going porn? to try... Wasn't that a porn that Chubb was in? A full measure of Doom? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me interrupt, interrupt you with no my problem. levity. So... So they get all the pieces together, they get Kristoff, uh, and they decide they're going to basically hook them big up to us. They're going to hook them both up to a big science machine and do a quick brain transfer, as you do. You know, Dr. Doctor Octopus style. Yeah, and Spider-Man's like, oh, I got it. I don't see how anything could possibly go wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> to, like you say, he really has a good tone with Spider-Man. Um, they hook everything up, and then Reed is the one manning the machine with the big transfer button, but he also has a conveniently labeled purge button, and Reed has to make to weigh the decision of should he take this moment to erase Doom's brain completely or transfer it over, and at the end, he decides to follow the plan and transfer Doom's brain. And Doom, there's a big explosion, but Doom emerges victorious, um, emanating magic and Kirby dots from his body and hands, and we see that Doom is victorious, and Doom is reborn. Well, in this panel set, in this panel set, though, Reed can't push the button. He's about to push the purge button, and it looks like his, um, you know, his father stares him down, and then ta- it, and now it almost seems like is his father coming over to press the button for him, or is that Reed pressing the button? No, Reed it's still the Reed button. pressing the button because he's wearing the gloves. But... Oh, okay. It's it's he needs that push from his father. It's it's a hard decision. Yeah, he has the chance to do arguably the right thing, arguably the wrong thing, and he decides to do only one of those, <laughs> which is arguably right and arguably wrong. But the thing that's necessary for the plan. It's it's funny though. It ends up being the right thing to do because that's the only way. There. Well, we'll see. Oh yes, <laughs> and here is where I, we. Oh, here, go ahead. Just real quick. I love that the first thing he does is try and channel magic, you know, because obviously that's been a big chunk of his life that's missing. And so it's almost like, let me test to make sure that I'm truly back and I'm truly who I should be. Let me do a little conjuring here. Uh, and it's successful, which I, I thought was really awesome. I mean, that, that whole full-page splash where he's got, you know, the Kirby dots in, the, in his right hand and that, you know, whatever it is he's conjuring up in his left hand uh, was was. It's just really, really well done. I mean, it was just a really cool panel. And again, a lot of there's a lot of blacks in there, but the coloring I think is what really just sets it apart. Oh yeah. And here's where it's revealed to us the other half of the plan. Um, basically, Christoph says, "Okay, it's time for me to relinquish the throne. You're back. You rule Latveria again." And Doom says, "No, now is not the time. I made a promise to young Valeria, and she has certainly fulfilled her end of the bargain." Uh, which confuses Reed. What are you talking about, Victor? And he sa- and uh, Nathaniel tells him the two of them made a deal. We made a deal, Daddy. We shook on it. Yes. And while I now suspect that she had already figured out a solution to fixing my brain beforehand, the shrewd trial did, in fact, restore me, and now I must do my part. Reed asks, and what is that part, Victor? And he says, oh, I agreed to help your daughter defeat you, Richards. So let's get on with it, shall we? Dun, dun, dun. It's funny, if you didn't know the context of the, 
you know, evil versions of Reed Richards that are out, you know, you would have, you know, you would actually think that Valeria turned evil or something. <laughs> and uh, the next cover, the cover of issue three, does indeed feature a bunch of the other Reeds from the Council of Reed Richards uh, attacking or pulling Reed towards them as he tries to escape. By by Daniel Acuna, I might add, who, that's an artist, not to get too far off topic, because he really doesn't do much art here other than do some covers and some variants, but... That guy, in the last few years, in my opinion, his craft has increased like tenfold. Um, he's, I, I just, I really enjoy his art, and I really enjoy how he's he's refined his craft in the last couple of years uh, immensely. It's very Alex Ross like. Yeah, but not. But he could do. You know, one the one big criticism of Alex Ross is he doesn't do a lot of action. You know, Ross is a lot of just you know poses and. You know, you know, it, it, it's hard to get a kind of a sense of sweeping action, and I think Acuna can convey it has it does a good job of conveying the action. I mean, obviously, we see in this panel here, you know, where where there's a lot of perceived movement and and emotion and things like that. Plus, I think Acuna is more of an illustrator. Ross is more of a painter. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, like, this has more of a watercolor. Or this crayons. looks like something. Yeah, this looks like something that was definitely done by you know drawing rather than painting. I mean, Alex Ross is definitely a painter. I mean, this looks drawn. Sure. I mean, if you look at the reeds in the bottom part of that, it almost looks like uh, you know even even um, like like a Darwin Cook or something or um, yeah, uh, Russ, Russ Manning, that classic illustrator style. Sure. You know, and the, so. yeah. the use of color on this on this yeah, cover is amazing it's too. It's mostly blue and black with white highlighting our read and then some white a tiny bit of red accents and and a splash of green down at the bottom like it's it's a cool looking cover yeah, yeah that star brand read looks awesome i mean that that's yes. just an awesome version and then the lex luthor one is i call it the lex luthor yeah. one with the with the green symbol in the in the chest and for the listeners out there that are thinking of getting the compendium just so you know the covers are not in between the chapters, it just flows into the first page from the last page of the, the previous issue. So, Did, did they put all the covers there. in the back? There's some really sharp variant covers. I mean, especially in FF1. I, maybe we might kind of glossed over it, but um, there's some really sweet covers in the series. So issue number three is entitled Whatever Happened to All Those Reads, which is probably a reference to Whatever Happened to the Cape Crusader, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, all those... Um, not explicitly, but I like to think it is. And we jump to the Baxter building where the Fantastic Cars are rocketing off uh, into the distance. And uh, Doom says to Reed, soon they will return, Richards, and with them surely bring your doom. And we get a couple pages of the members of the FF venturing out to the various uh, Fantastic Four villains throughout the Marvel Universe and giving them an envelope, which we do not see at first, but they go to the High Evolutionary they go to Diablo. Uh, Spider-Man has a great exchange with the Mad Thinker, who yeah. is hilarious and insane. Uh, Sue goes to Outlier Island, secret aim base, home of the Wizard, and meets Dr. Gemma, Dr. Forson, and, of course, the Wizard, along with, uh, she brings with them uh, Bentley 23. And we finally see what this note they're bringing to all of these villains is. And at the top of the note, we have the uh, FF logo, and it says, Your presence is requested at the Symposium on Conquering the Mount Fantastic, How to Finally Defeat Reed Richards. Hosted by Victor Von Doom to be held at the Baxter Building two days hence, Q&A to follow the main presentation. I love that last <laughs> little bit. I love the Q&A to follow main presentation. <laughs> it's such a great line. Yeah. Um, the thing is, I mean, if you think about who they sent where, everything really fits. 
they send the Moloids to I Evolutionary because they were with the thing because they were the result of that storyline. Okay, they send uh, Dragon Man to Diablo because Diablo created Dragon Man uh, back in the day. Uh, they send you know the Mad, Spider-Man to the Mad Thinker because Spider-Man and the Mad Thinker thought before or fought before, and, and it's hilarious to tell you know like you said Jordan we mentioned about his hygiene, and of course they send Susan to you know keep an eye on Bentley, and they confront the wizard with him. So I mean it wasn't like by random chance that you know who they sent where. It was just very very thought out, and this sets up one of the the coolest parts of this whole story arc for me. This whole like council of the you know the anti Reed Richards council or whatever it's. It's pretty sweet. The symposium. Yeah, and I'm, uh, I'm a huge fan of like supervillain team up back in the day, secret society of supervillains, uh, you know, Suicide Squad, all those supervillain centered books. So Legion see, of Doom. <laughs> yeah, exactly the Legion of Doom. So this is a, this is just like candy for me. And uh, the wizard part of uh, of this pr- uh, prologue, if you will, ends with a line that Hickman will reuse many times throughout his Marvel runs, and that is the wizard saying, how could we refuse after reading the note? That line, if you pay attention to Hickman books, pops up all the time, at least in his Marvel work. And uh, two days later, we jump to the Baxter building, where everyone's sitting around a table, all these supervillains with Reed and Valeria and Nathaniel. And, of course, uh, the two AIM lieutenants. It's kind of funny that they get a seat at the table, literally, but uh, I think they fit, and they're a lot of fun. And so they start to explain exactly what happened after Reed warns them, anything goes down here, I've got the Avengers on standby, this thing will go nuclear faster than you can say the atomic weight of hydrogen. The coolest part of this is when the Watcher pops up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And Reed looks down at Valeria and says, The Watcher? What have you done, Valeria? (laughs) And that is one of the it most was a, like terrifying. A, was that is a, one of the most terrifying renditions of the Watcher I've ever seen. That is gorgeous. I, yeah. you know, I know you, the term "lol" is like overused or whatever, but I literally laughed out loud at that panel when I first read it. It's just great, it, great moment. It's funny because they've, and it's been more in recent times than than I can think in in the past. You know, the the Watcher will show up, you know, from time to time, obviously, or. A lot of times I think they've done it to where he's been more of an external observer when he shows up. Like, they'll show him, you know, either looking from the moon or they'll show him looking from a distance or whatever. And in the last several years, they've shown him it's like when stuff's really going down, the Watcher's not just, like, looking from afar. He's right there. Like, he is in the room. Like, whatever is going on is so important and so big that he's... he's, Yes, yes. (laughs) He, he wants to no make sure his to presence is known. Ignore me. Pay no attention. And, and that line you mentioned, Jim, of what have you done, Valeria, will be echoed either later in this issue or uh, a few issues from now with uh, Sue saying the same exact thing to read or, or paraphrasing to read. But we get a recap of something we had seen earlier in the series. It was either last episode or the episode before. I cannot remember. But where Valeria went through, she goes through the bridge, she meets the other uh, evil reeds as the Celestials attack. They escape back to Earth-616. Of course, that would be our Earth. Uh, But now we actually get full text, whereas before we got a lot of symbols and a very unclear message of what they were planning on doing. Well, what they're planning on doing is sacrificing our world to uh, get back to the multiverse and start saving others. They've, They've judged this one ripe for sacrifice. And uh, they kind of make fun of the technology of the world after they do a few scans. You know, our biggest large-scale power source is large core nuclear. You've got to be kidding me. Read what have you, what have you been wasting your time on? And uh, they start going through some of the other readings, and they, they talk about 
Um, gentlemen, right now there are worlds dying while we stand here trapped on this one. Find me something I can use. And they find increasing variables, expanding search. Oh, now this is useful. A stable geothermal vent, an ascension engine, and there's a dormant dynamo under the blue area of the moon, all in a curved axis, and it matches the harmonics of the negative zone, which, of course, the moloids told us a few issues ago. And we we learned that this is called Saul's Anvil, or the Sun's Anvil, I believe is what Saul translates to. And they say they haven't used that in three years when they used one to crush a Beyonder from the universe twenty or five two zero two, which is a big deal. Now, are these the four cities he's referring to, like the yes, the stable geothermal, the, you know, the ascension engine, the stable geothermal vent, the dormant on the blue area of the moon? These are the four cities that they've used in the whole story, right? Uh, the negative zone is one. Uh, of course, the negative zone. The, the geothermal vent is Old Atlantis. The ascension engine is the uh, tomorrow city of the high evolutionary. And the blue area of the moon is, uh, well, it's where Adelaide goes. Right, it's the inhumans of the other races. And this is, of course, setting up the war of the four cities, which we've had teased several times throughout the run. Right. And they, they, uh, they tell Valeria, well, we're off to do what we're going to do. You go tell your father what you've done and that he still has a place with us. Uh, we then flash forward to months later um, at the peak, Old Atlantis, where one of the Reeds has made a deal with a few members of Old Atlantis, and uh, he kills one of them uh, to insert a machine in that one's brain and prove to the others that that species race was planning on a hostile takeover of the peak. And uh, he, he continues to make a deal with them. We jump away to the Forever City, where one of the other Reeds is making a deal with the Mole Man and some Moloids. The Mole Man wants his people back. And uh, he wants to stop the Forever City. This Reed has another idea. He's going to push the uh, Forever City even farther so that the uh, the Moloids who have been evolved by it will be able to breed, but they will make the deal um, eventually. It doesn't actually happen on this page, but I'm going to jump ahead anyway. Uh, they're going to make the deal that uh, they will accept no more Moloids from the Mole Man's kingdom. So he'll be happy, and the evolved Moloids will be happy. Uh, on the blue area of the moon, another reed, the Professor X-style one, goes and speaks to the uh, Universal Inhumans and tries to make a deal with them. But uh, they have a Centauri telepath, which he, even though he's shielded against telepaths, he hasn't dealt with one of them before. They read his mind, see that he's bad news, and they kill him very quickly to get the information they need. And uh, they prepare for war, and we'll come back to this exact scene uh, later on this episode. They read his mind directly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, by having a brood queen shoot a uh, mandible a, into his head. I think it's a dire wraith. Oh, di- so yeah, yes, uh, dire wraith. Yeah, there are there are. Uh, no, it's not Badoon, It's brood. It's brood. It's the Chimelians, the Centauri, the brood, and uh, and uh, the dire wraiths. I keep saying brood. I keep saying brood, but the Badoon. <laughs> the Badoon. The names are similar. Yeah, the brood are the insectoid uh, aliens from X Men. Right. 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 Yeah. The fourth and final read goes to the other side of Zero, the cult of the negative zone, where he kind of pushes past the anti-priest and demands an audience with Annihilus himself. And he says, hey, I need access to the negative zone. What do you want in return? And Annihilus tells him, just leave the portal open. Open for armies, open for destruction, open for annihilation. And the evil read says, that can be arranged. (laughs) And then we end the final page of this issue. says, now... And it's them standing by uh, the partially constructed Saul's anvil. And uh, they determine that uh, the one member who went to Adelaide still hasn't come back. Or not to Adelaide, but the blue area of the moon still hasn't come back. 
and they decide it doesn't matter, it doesn't change anything, we can still activate the dynamo remotely, it's just not ideal. They say they're on schedule, and they're going to sacrifice this world for the greater good. One world for the many. Now, brothers, we orchestrate a war. And, of course, sacrificing one world for the greater good, one for the many, will be very important later on in Hickman's new Avengers run. Still ongoing. Now, something yep. I wanted to ask, we, we determined that the um, the read, uh, the good read is good because he had his father or whatever. Does that mean that all the other reads never never married, never had children, all that other stuff? Because the one read says, you know, vowels like you never do behave, do they? I mean, so there's, that means there's more than one vow as well? I'd say some of them may have married, but all of them abandoned their families eventually. Because I think oh, okay. that's what it's established yeah. earlier when Reed first met the council. Even if they had families, they abandoned them. Well, they I they bring you. it up later when they talk about, like, how do how do we beat these reeds? And they, you know, Reed, our Reed basically tells them, you can't use the same logic you would use on me. Like, for me, you would get to Sue or Franklin or Valeria or Ben or... You know, somebody close to me, you can't do that with these guys because they, you know, they, like you said, Jordan, they abandoned their families for the science, for the greater universe, the, you know, their, their bigger purpose and mission in life or what they perceive that to be. Exactly. Issue number four, then, has Ben Grimm on the cover hoisting a crushed car above his head in uh, in a torn up version of his costume. And I like in, in the FF version of his costume, they gave him more of a wrestler's unitard with legs instead of just the shorts. Like, it kind of works yeah. for him, having the uh, the tank top, if you will. And you see the uh, the license plate Acuna, Acuna used 2011? That, yeah, he uses that as his signature for the for the cover. I thought that's cool. Which is very clever. Uh, issue number four is entitled The Beating of Drums, which brings up uh, other memories for me as a Doctor Who fan. And this is, I wonder we if that get was an art switch here too. This is Barry Kitson instead of Steve Epting. And you could, in my mind, you could tell right away. Oh, and you know what? Uh, I, I love this art as well. Not as much. Um, but there are some things, like the Thing's face. We get a couple close-ups of the Thing's face later on. And it is just amazing. How much yeah. detail he puts into there? Yeah, Mounts is still on the color, so at least we get that you know that continuity between the two. Barry Kitson kind of always reminded me of of that lighter illustrative style, like you get with Kevin McGuire. Um, just you know, very very studied but very detailed in in the right way. Um, definitely a lighter style than Epting, but still, I really liked it as well. They're very similar, so similar that quite honestly, when I reread these issues earlier today, I did not notice the artist change. So I may have conflated the two in my head, but they're they're both very good. Well, I, you can see it because Kitson's a, he's a little more cartoony, yeah. In in, in this art, um, but I have to say, I you know the characters they don't just float through the book. They're not propped up against faux backgrounds. I mean, they're moving through the book, uh, walking and breathing. You know, I mean, there's there's you you can grasp the feel in each panel from the way he did the art and uh, especially with Mount's coloring it. We start with a couple pages that I really love. Another small use of Spider-Man where uh, he, he asks uh, why she's bothering cutting off the crust for the kids on their sandwiches. And she explains they like it better that way. And then she asks him if he wants a sandwich. He says, sure. Uh, mayonnaise? Gross. Okay, then cut off the crust. He says, no doubt. Or no crust, rather. So yeah. uh, I love this that little is... interaction between them. And this is the bit with the Molot I was talking about earlier. He says, the food is ready. The sandwich of strength. The, st- the sandwich of glory. 
<laughs> and see, in my in my head, I always hear him go up on glory. So it's the sandwich of strength, the strength, uh, the sandwich of glory. Almost <laughs> like the um, the the green aliens in Toy Story. For some reason, I hear them like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that's another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. But it, but it's a good stuff. And at the end of the scene, as they're kind of talking about the villains, Sue isn't scared about the villains. She says, "You know what they all have in common." And Pete asks, what's that? She says, throughout the years, I've beaten every one of them, over and over, badly. So tell me, do you think I should be afraid of them, or should they be afraid of me? That's a fair point. And at that moment, a uh, let's just say an alarm starts going off. We'll get back to that later. Because we're going to flip to the next page with what they're calling the Council of Doom. Sitting at the table, of course, we have, just to recap, the Watcher, the High Evolutionary, Nathaniel Richards, Reed Richards, Valeria Richards, Dr. Doom, Diablo, the wizard, the wizard's aim lieutenants, uh, Dr. Forsum and Dr. Gemma, and the mad thinker. And so they discuss what they're going to do. And uh, first, Reed chews out his daughter for keeping this a secret for so long that the other Reeds are uh, wreaking havoc on Earth, because that's a problem. And so they just start discussing what they're going to do. And uh, the wizard... Or I should say, one of the one of the lieutenants. I forget which one stutters. It's either Doctor Gem or Doctor Forson. But asks, "What are we going to do?" And uh, they start discussing it. You know, concentrate on his weaknesses. The Diablo says, and uh, the Mad Thinker starts ranting about crazy nonsense. Uh, as does the Wizard, who suggests they follow Solomon's example and uh, find all those Richards' children and cut them in half. And Reed explains, just like you said earlier, I believe it was Jim who said this. You know, you don't understand. They abandon their families. There's nothing there that you can use against them. Um, they do not have families or friends. They only have each other and their cause. They push worlds around and rebuild suns. This is much, much worse than any of you could have imagined. Uh, flip the page and we see Doom standing against the outside of the door just waiting for things to get ugly so he can step in. Not Doom, then, uh, the thing. The thing. I'm sorry, the thing, yes. As he gets shot in the head by a, uh, a, a dart with a uh, rubber sucker on the end, shot by Bentley. And uh, this will come back later, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, Bentley and the others playing with, what, what do you call those? Just suction cup dart guns? I don't even know if there's sure. a name for them. Bentley says that he has no problem with what's going on. He says, have you seen who is in that room? This is really turning into my type of place. I think the better question, Mr. Monster Face, is what are you still doing here? And uh, Ben storms off. And at that moment, Bentley gets shot several times with suction cups as uh, Franklin, Leech, and Artie shoot him and make a little Charlie's Angel pose. And then, of course, in their time frame, that same alarm we saw earlier starts going off. We then go to elsewhere in the Baxter building where Dragon Man and Alex Power are helping to adjust the temperature on the tank for the Atlantean children because uh, if it's too hot, it makes things taste too tart. And at that moment... The same alarm starts going off in that room, but the uh, Atlantean children also start making that same noise. Uh, we flash forward to moments later as everyone converges, everyone who is not part of the Council of Doom, to find out what that alarm was. And it's the uh, spiral, the spiral, which is a shell that uh, old Atlantis can use to communicate with Sue. Remember, she's uh, basically Earth's ambassador, or humankind ambassador, to old Atlantis. And they tell her, Susan of the Storm, dark water, dark water, there's open revolt in the peak. Corda and Mala have united to steal the crown, and she tells them she's on her way, tell them to hold. And so they run off, leaving the Council of Doom to continue what they're doing, because Sue is convinced that she, Spider-Man, Alex Power, and Dragon Man can, can, can contain it themselves. She is a badass. 
So we then go back to the Council of Doom, where, uh, I believe this is Dr. Forsum says, humor me, Dr. Richards, while I lay this out. You're saying these men are just as intelligent as you, but lack the soft nature and general weakness that you possess? That they have the ambitions to rule worlds and decide the fates of others as they see fit? To which Doom says, I do believe I like these these reads. To which Reed says, you wouldn't. One of the things they do is turn any Victor Von Doom they encounter on any world into vegetables. They continue to consider you too dangerous to let to just wander around. To which Diablo says, well then, I do believe I like these reads. <laughs> to which yes. we get the grumpiest Doom face yes. I've ever seen. Yes. It's interesting that Reed just had to make that decision himself. Yes. Yeah, I, I did think that was, that was cool. But he decided to not follow them, their example. So, Nathaniel speaks up, Nathaniel Richards, Reed's father, and says, let's think about this another way. Reed, let's say you were stripped of everything that you held dear, you were trapped in another world, what would you do? And Reed figures out, they're building a machine. Uh, to which Doom says, ah, Doom says, ah, then we have them. Uh, because we now know where they're going to be, because someone here knows exactly what they're going to build. And Valeria explains Saul's anvil, what it is, where it is, and what it's going to do. I thought it was funny that here they are trying to find this solution to find out what's going on, and they allow all this crazy debate, and Valeria doesn't speak up and mention the Saul's hammer thing at all. Yeah, I found that weird, too. Like, they're having all this debate on how to take them down, and yet Valeria already knew their plan. Well, she did just get chewed out by her dad. I could see why she'd be a little... Uh, slow to be forthcoming with more information that she hadn't already told him. But uh, she also tells him, of course, they're going to use the thermal vent under Old Atlantis, so we then go forward to two hours later, the peak Old Atlantis, where everyone has switched to the black versions, or predominantly black versions of their costumes. Um, As all-out war starts, as uh, the different factions of Old Atlantis start battling each other, Pete, Alex, and Sue go into full battle mode, and it's really cool, especially in their black costumes. There's lots and lots of fighting. The Mole Man shows up with one of the evil reeds and uh, a giant underground-dwelling monster and a bunch of moloids and other type smaller creatures. And Sue is very shocked to see her husband there. Isn't that the creature from Fantastic Four number one? If not, it's very similar. Yeah, it's definitely a homage to that. Yeah, oh yeah. And uh, Sue's Sue's uh, troubled expression and outburst of Reed is what ends our issue. I, I'll tell you uh, before we go on to number five. When I was reading this for the, when it was coming out, you know, I was hesitant at first because, like, you know, anytime they do these kind of things, it, it's like what we said earlier it could be a cash grab kind of situation. But um, I've I really had enjoyed it, but it was issue number four when I realized that what Hickman has been doing is not just telling a great story and weaving the, all these other plots and things into it that he's still using today. Uh, but this is a real good character study of what makes the Fantastic Four and the, everything involved with the Fantastic Four tick. Character by character, team by team, villain by villain. Uh, just so many levels of how awesome this writing is. Oh, Absolutely. And issue number five is entitled The Sound of War. And on our cover, we have all the Fantastic Four, or the FF rather, uh, heaped in a hump. Uh, heaped in a hump. I don't even know if that's a real sentence. But all of them unconscious on the ground with a backlit figure that uh, longtime Marvel readers will probably recognize, even with the backlighting. But we won't spoil it for now. We'll get to it by the end of the issue. But The Sound of War. You can probably pick up where we're going if you know Marvel. 
Uh, so everyone else at the Baxter building finds out that Sue and the others left to go to old Atlantis and uh, Reed picks up the spiral. They figure out a way to reverse engineer it to try and get a image of what's going on in old Atlantis. Meanwhile, uh, Bentley and the children with their suction cup guns hold the villains at bay. <laughs> we don't want a ruckus. <laughs> Something I can help you with, mister. <laughs> Which is just awesome. And uh, the image they get of Old Atlantis is a smoking crater in the ground. Uh, we then go to the peak Old Atlantis 15 minutes ago as the battle is still raging. Sue goes up to the evil Reed, who, remember, she doesn't know even exists. And uh, she asks him what he's doing. And the moment he takes off his, uh, his eyepiece, his kind of Cyclops-looking eyepiece, she goes, you're not my Reed. He goes, no, I'm not. I'm much more partial to brunettes. And he shoots her with a space gun. And she falls to the ground on fire. Uh, Pete goes to save her, leaving Alex to deal with the oncoming horde. So Alex uh, uses his gravity powers to create a huge rift in the ground. Uh, Pete goes and rescues uh, Sue, who only has minor injuries, but Alex is caught off guard and his arm is broken by one of the creatures. Yeah, but he's able to like make that giant trench and build a wall. Yeah, with his gravity powers, which really like helps them to tie the battle. I think he's a Game of Thrones fan because he was really making. He's really enjoying his ice wall there. By the end of it, uh, they are okay, but the uh, the big explosion happens, and they're forced to kind of fly away in the Fantastic Car. We then get a little interstitial with uh, Ben Grimm, the thing, at Alicia Masters' apartment, uh, where they have a nice little chat, and she tells him that she still loves him, she's going to be there for him, uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. Later on at the Baxter building, Reed is patching up Alex Power's arm, which, remember, it was broken. This is apparently the first time Alex Power has ever broken a bone. And he explains, uh, Reed explains to him that he's very proud of what he did. Um, he, he was told by the others that Alex did a great job, so he shouldn't feel bad, even if his arm did got broken. And then Reed turns to Sue, who is not happy. Uh, he tells her she has a mild concussion, but she's going to be fine. And uh, this is where we get that, that kind of a mere image of what uh, Reed said to Val of, of what have you done Valeria but just her asking what in the world did you do what have you been hiding from me what happened Reed and he said he's done something terrible this just gives him a chance to come clean with Sue and yes he's been finally keep, yeah he's been keeping the secret for way too long So, but she figured out that he knew because when uh, Peter told him about the alternate evil Reed he didn't look surprised at all. And that was the clue she needed to know that he's been keeping stuff from her. Yeah. Meanwhile, at the Forever City of the High Evolutionary, uh, the evil Reeds working on Soul's Anvil meet with uh, the Mole Man and some of the mutated Moloids and some of the, or the evolved Moloids and some of the regular Moloids, and they explain the situation and that uh, the deal of, you know, no more Moloids will be accepted into the city, but the ones who are there will now be able to uh, mate and, and procreate. So everyone agrees, and the final image of the Mole Man, or the final big image of the Mole Man, is just a gorgeous close-up of his face. I think we've seen a Barry Kitson close-up of the Mole Man earlier in this series, not in this issue, or this episode, but a previous one, and it always just looks so good. And at that moment, the evil reeds look up and they see Adelan floating down into a hole in the center of the city. And one of them says, no, that's Adelan. The worlds and humans have returned to Earth. And we get a final splash page for the issue of Black Bolt, who readers at the time would have been very surprised about because he was currently dead, and Medusa, and they look ticked, and they're landing on Earth. It's a great, great panel of Black Bolt. It looks 
It looks great on his uh, throne there. And I love that kind of shoulder piece they gave him. Kind of a cape, but it's not really cloth. Yeah, it looks more like armor. But it's it's armor slash cape with his underarm things. Like, it's a weird thing that doesn't really exist in history, but it's it's very cool looking. Not in human history. But in uh-huh. human history. And, and she needs a serious haircut. I'm just saying. <laughs> you would remove her power? Come on. You tell her she needs uh, a haircut. Issues 6 and 7 are both illustrated by Greg Torchini and written by John Hickman, but they retain the color artist Paul Mounts. And these are, we'll go through these pretty quick, but these are a side story kind of setting up, wait, how is Black Bolt still alive? What is going on? What is his plan? And uh, some other interesting things. But we basically get a flashback to the War of Kings when Black Bolt died killing Emperor Vulcan uh, while leading the Shi'ar. Uh, well, of course, Falcon was controlling the Shi'ar, and Black Bolt was controlling the Kree. There was a lot of big changes at the time in Marvel Cosmic. But uh, we see the very kind of creepy image of a uh, just skull Black Bolt as he died, and his various wives throughout the galaxy crying out in agony, as if the sound of a thousand voices, a la um, Star Wars. And we kind of get some of the, the fallout from that, what was going on on Hala as the Inhumans were ruling. And Maximus has a plan, because Maximus always has a plan, but we'll get to that later. And uh, at that moment, Lockjaw, the... the I, Apparently, I read this recently, I did not know this, but apparently it's been retconned that he's not technically an Inhuman. He is actually a dog, evolved by the Terrigen Mist. I don't know if I like that so much, but either he's an Inhuman that happens to look like a dog, or he's actually just a space dog. I'm not getting caught up on it. But he smells something off in the distance, and he teleports away. Now, this this story takes place concurrently with the War of Kings story? Or right this after? This is, like, right after. Okay. So this is, like, Thanos Imperative time. Okay. Like, right before the Thanos Imperative. Well, this, yeah, because this would be after Realm of Kings, because of the whole... Yeah. Uh, the whole thing with the bleed... With the... The, uh, the Cancerverse, or whatever. The rip into the Cancerverse, which is where they kind of right. got sucked into. Well, the rift opened because of Black Bolt's scream at right. the end of War of Kings. But didn't War of Kings happen after Realm of Kings? No, Realm of Kings was no. out. I have it backwards. It was War of Kings and Realm. Yeah. Okay, so this would have been during Realm then. Um, well, it kind of, we kind of flash around a lot, but it's, so it's, it's that and after that. Um, and I guess after Thanos Imperative for some parts. But we flash back, uh, we flash a long way back to Hala. Uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, when we have an old accuser, uh, long-time predecessor to Ronan the Accuser. Uh, and the Supreme Intelligence is getting a report from his advisors about all of the inhuman trials they've been trying to jumpstart their evolution all throughout the galaxy. Of course, this is something Hickman reckoned in. We used to think it was just the ones that have been humans. Apparently, this happened all over the place throughout the universe. But this is him getting the final report from his scientists about the results, and they upload this data crystal to Supreme War, the Supreme Intelligence of the Kree, and he gets kind of a data download of all the information, but as it starts to accumulate in his brain, all of his many brains, if you will, his many consciousnesses start to sift through the data and start to prophesy what will happen in the future based on the many possibilities that could happen, and uh, it is prophesied that if all of this goes through, there will be one who will rise and take down the Supreme War. Of course, this is something that happened during, uh, or either during War of Kings or right before War of Kings with the death of Supreme War, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think it was and, uh, we get an 
we get an origin of the symbol of House Boltagon, that uh, kind of tuning fork symbol, and we find that it symbolizes a divergent path, and it is the symbol of the end of the Supreme War. And uh, he does not take kindly to that, and he tells them to end the breeding program, and uh, he decides to kill all of the test subjects, but one of the scientists doesn't want to ruin his life's work, so he breaks the crystal before uh, the Supreme Intelligence has gotten all of the information, so six worlds do indeed survive the purge. 94%. I should say five worlds survive. But yes, uh, 94% of them are destroyed. Well, it's, um, it's, it makes, I don't know, I know it's a retcon, but it, wouldn't it make more sense if the Kree Empire would try it on a lot of different species since they're trying oh, to diversify oh, the yeah. gene pool than just one? I mean, this is I think this is an idea of when retcon works to, to make the story better rather than to detract from it, for sure. Sure. See, and this is the point in the run where I was a little confused because I didn't read any of the War Kings, any of that stuff. Um, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I still haven't. I really need to, but... Um, this is where I got a little lost because I was trying to figure out exactly what was going on with these characters because I hadn't read that. So, Well, I remember when these issues came out, people were not happy that we were taking this two-issue time out from the main story to get a Black Bolt story. Like, people did not understand how important this was going to be. Not that there was really any way they could know, but I, I just remember the vitriol on message boards and such of people who were like, what happened to this run? It used to be so good. Now it sucks. And of course they were proven wrong by the end, but still it was very loud for a period of time. This art isn't really on par either with uh, kids that are, are, are empting. If you, if you ask me, it's very cartoon. Yeah. It's more, it's yeah. more, it's more loose. Um, plus, I mean, this is really Hickman filling in his own continuity, not even, you know, beyond war of Kings and realm of Kings. This explains the whole, you know, five kingdoms thing or the, the, uh, the, you know, the, the city on the moon, you know, that popped up on the moon the last time we had an episode, you know, with all the different, you know, the universal inhumans and stuff. It really gives a lot more depth in the history of, of the Marvel Universe and explains where they came from and why there are only, you know, the five or six uh, worlds, you know. And it's not like he just went, you know, I really need to do this for this story, so I'm going to recon this in. This is stuff he's still using now, and right. I know I keep saying this, but in Avengers and New Avengers and Infinity sure. and Avengers World, like, this stuff has major importance to this day. Yeah, and I mean, I have to admit, I now I wasn't quite as over dramatic as saying it sucked or anything like that. But I remember I was one of the ones uh, that because um, this was right around when we started Nerd Herd and we were covering this Hickman run, and you know, uh, I was not happy at all because I didn't know what was going on in these issues because again, I was I was missing some backstory. And now that you've read the whole thing, would you say it makes a lot more sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense even to today, like you said. So, um, you know, I, I'll eat crow on that one. Yeah. But I remember <laughs> at the time, I was just like, we we had awesome, awesome issues. We had something building, and then we have this. But it, it what this ultimately pays off with, I was wrong. <laughs> Plus, it's, a, it's an FF book without the FF in it. Right. Right, which is a little weird. Uh, so we see, of course, the burning of those worlds as uh, the accuser Huron and his men just go through and purge everything except, of course, those five that remained. And we see in the fault in the present day, or, or a few months ago at least, as Black Bolt wakes up in the fault, his destiny still yet unfulfilled. And he says, 
Um, or he doesn't say anything, but we're told in the uh, in the caption boxes, fate cannot be avoided. One day you wake, and the universe has conspired to make of you something more. And that day, it is now, as Black Bolt opens his eyes, and they twinkle in the most adorable and terrifying way ever. And I actually kind of like this art. I know it's very different, it's very cartoony and loose, but it's, I don't know, I kind of, I do kind of like it. I wouldn't like it for the main run, for, for you know, the entirety of the book, but I, it works for this as kind of yeah. a history dream world type feel. It gives the Supreme War like kind of a really trippy feel. I mean, it's definitely, it kind of has that 60s, 70s, you know, kind of Jim Starlin influence I see in it. And um, it definitely fits for this cosmic, you know, twofer or whatever, you know, two-part story. And, and again, I remember being down on this this art and this whole concept. And, you know, looking back now, it's kind of, I think that it has that trippy look to it and that, that tie-dyed background and everything, you know, just kind of melding together. I think the whole point of this was to jar the reader into, we're going a different direction for a couple issues. Sit back. Oh, it definitely sets it apart from the rest of the story, for sure. Yeah. So, within the fault, which I believe means we are in the Cancerverse, I guess technically because it's the fault, you could be in many different places, but due to the very Catholic H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, look of the monster Black Bolt fights on the other side of the fault, I'm going to guess it's the Cancerverse. Um, and he says, J- release me, just as a whisper to break some of his bonds, and then we don't even see what he says next, but he, he just destroys this huge Cthulhu-like creature. And he lands on an asteroid when all of a sudden, who should teleport in but Lockjaw, uh, who he's very happy to see. And then we flash back to Hala, the homeworld of the Kree, where Medusa is sitting on the throne dealing with some rabble-rousers in the Kree crowd who are not happy about how things are going, when all of a sudden, Black Bolt and Lockjaw teleport back in. And this is a major game-changer. Um, so one of the rabble-rousers continues after they've settled things down. He says, you know, you know this war that you've caused is left us less than we should have been and all these things and we we want to be left to our own devices we want to rule ourselves again and black bolt con- uh, communicates through his wife and with and hand signals and her telepathy and uh, she tells ronin well according to my husband he says we're going to leave this uh, decision to ronin ronin the accuser who will serve as our acting regent in our absence which ronin is very surprised but she says, it seems that we must immediately return to Earth. We and humans are supposed to be there. It is a summoning. And uh, when one of the rabble-rousers starts yelling, and what do you mean? What's changed? What's going on? Black Bolt says, I am awake. And he unleashes his terrible power and decimates the courtroom and leaves a gaping hole in the body of the rabble-rouser who continued to badger him. Lesson here, don't <laughs> mess with Black Bolt. <laughs> I'll, give you the, I'll give you the Rick Grimes version. Yeah. Don't screw that. with Mac Bolt. Don't. You're screwing with the wrong Boltagon. Don't frack. Uh, so they depart for Earth, and we see that Crystal is given the option. Crystal, of course, being married to Ronin, which is a very touching story in Marvel Cosmic around that time. And she's given the option, do you want to come with us, your family, or do you want to stay with your husband? And she grasps Ronin ha- Ronin's hand, and they remain on Hala to continue ruling. And then we flash back again to 300,000 years ago. As the Supreme War calls in one of the accusers, I don't know if this is still Euron or another one because I believe this is much later on, and the guy looks a little bit different. Yeah. But uh, he explains, I've come up with a backup plan. Basically, if this whole future prophecy is going to take place and I'm going to be destroyed by, by one of our experiments, 
then we're going to make this black backup plan. I'm going to give you this thing that's called the Supreme Or Seed. If I ever get destroyed, you use this to regrow a new one. And it's hidden inside of the Universal Weapon, which is um, Ronin's hammer. His big, giant, freaking hammer, which is awesome. And he tells that... Uh, he tells the accuser, who again, I don't think we're given a name for the specific one, carry it, wait in your heart. And that will come into play in the next episode, I believe. We then flash forward to the moon one month ago when that uh, Professor X-looking evil Reed uh, was trying to fake out the Universal and humans, and they killed him. We see those same scenes again. But then right after the panel we had seen, they all start reacting with, uh, you know, kind of energy Kirby dots above their head as they say he is here. And Black Bolt and Adelaine return to the blue area of the moon to reunite the families. And we are told that uh, one will come whose voice will shake worlds and make the universe tremble. Of mighty voice that will rule in silence. But in that silence, one word will hang in the air. One word unspoken. War. And we're told next issue, villains unite. You forgot almost has that. He, was given, he was given a harem of five brides. Yeah. Well, yeah, but we knew that was coming. <laughs> it, it's Plus kind of one funny. Of a horse. That last panel there, where he's kind of got his uh, his fist on his chin, it reminds me of that at the end of Conan the Barbarian, the the Schwarzenegger movie, where it's like oh, old yeah. Conan, you know, thinking back on on things. I, I just heavy is the head that. that wears the crown. Yes. So that takes us to the end of issue seven and the end of the issues we'll be discussing in this episode. So, gentlemen, do you have anything else to say about? Uh, the seven issues we've read tonight. I mean, for me, this is my first read through of FF. I, I had I had read and picked up the actual Fantastic Four issues at uh, a while back on a Comicsology sale, so uh, I was just kind of getting caught up for for the show. So this is my first run through with these. I I didn't read them at the time, uh, you know, that they came out. And it only gets cooler from here. <laughs> like it's, this is all still in setup mode. Yeah, and it's kind of cool. You know, having I'm pretty current on Hickman's, you know, Avengers, New Avengers, and Avengers World. So seeing, you know, like the AIM guys and and some of this other stuff that uh, that he's dropped here and in the FF run in general, kind of rearing his head again in his Avengers run is really is really cool. That you know he's playing such a long game with some of these stories and some of these threads. Yeah, I think uh, we keep coming back to this theory over and over that Hickman is just telling one long story. Yeah. Through FF, through Avengers, through Infinity, through Avengers World, even Secret the Warriors, Shield. Shield. I mean, it goes all the way back there. So, is the Shield run done? There are still no. two issues to, uh, left okay. to come out. I believe they are scheduled to come out this year. Because I haven't read any of those, and I've read the uh, the um... Secret Warriors. Yeah, I have the first few issues of Shield. I'm waiting for the inevitable hardcover. It's definitely one one you're going to want to read in one sitting. Right. Um, probably two or three times. It's dense. Yes. It's not quite nightly news or Pax Romana level dense, but really close. And there's a lot of cool stuff in there as well. Um, I also want to mention, just kind of as a side note, um, as Guardians of the Galaxy is nearly upon us, uh, less than two weeks until that movie comes out, as we record this anyway, there's now a Guardians of the Galaxy mobile game called Guardians of the Galaxy The Universal Weapon, which is, of course, that hammer with the Supreme War seed we saw in that last issue. Um, it's a lot of fun. It is a game that I think it's, uh, at least on iOS, it's $4.99. There's no in-app purchases, even though it seems like it would be incredibly easy for them to do that. Um, the writing's a lot of fun. The gameplay is not 
my favorite ever, but I am having fun with it. And you get to play as not just the movie characters, but Mantis and Angela and Yondu and Charlie 23 and Beta Ray Bill and a ton of other Marvel heroes and villains in the in the cosmic universe. There is a lot of fun stuff in here, and there's little interstitial uh, comics between the issues that are very funny. So, if you like Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, you have an iPhone, or I believe it's available on Android as well, and uh, you don't mind parting with $5, you might want to check that out. I wasn't going to get into it. You said Charlie 23 was in it. Now, now I'm sold. (laughs) I believe about half of the original Guardians are currently available to play. I mean, you have to level up enough to the where you can unlock them. And the other half say coming soon. There's a whole bunch of characters like War of Kings, or not War of Kings, but um, uh, Planet Hulk, Hulk, and uh, Roman Day, and uh, Vance Astro that are, say, all labeled coming soon. So they, they say they plan on like updating it once a month with more content. It's a very cool little RPG beat-em-up, so... So with that out of the way, you can leave us a voicemail at 972-798-3830, 972-798-3830, or email us at LOD at HHWLOD.com. Uh, check out all the great shows on our network, uh, like Walking Dead TV, which will be coming back very soon in force as the new season starts. Out now with Aaron and Abe, uh, Jersey Shore, the Ecopod Cranecast, the new uh, James Bond podcast, which has been a ton of fun, even as a person who's seen very few James Bond movies, I've been enjoying it, and tons and tons of other stuff like Jim's Action Lab podcast. If it's nerdy, if it's awesome, there's a good chance we've got a podcast or seven about it that you can check out at hhwled.com, and of course there's Facebook groups for a lot of those shows as well. You can follow us on Twitter at LODtweet or at hhwlod underscore network. And uh, this has been the uh, Long Box of Doom. I'm Jordan from Jersey, joined by Jim, Russ, and our newest member, Rich. Welcome again, Rich. Uh, Have a fantastic 2014, everybody. It's our very own Fantastic Four on this episode. Yes, indeed. I dibs Ben.
Just surrendered 